When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized badass disability rights activist, Judy Human. This episode, Judy chats with Molly Joyce. Molly is a composer and performer whose work is centered around using disability as a creative source. Molly's new album, Perspective, features voices of disabled people from all over the world from interviews conducted by Molly. You can find the link to Perspective and more of Molly's music in the description of this episode. Plus, you'll hear a clip of the song Weakness at the end of this interview. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Human Perspective. Today, we are going to be talking with Molly Joyce. I met Molly. Molly, when did I meet you? When were you here for the Kennedy Fellowship? Um, I think it was about three years ago or almost four years ago now. <laughs> it was before COVID. Mm-hmm. And describing Molly in one word is not possible. <laughs> and uh, I think what's going to be exciting about today's conversation is learning more about who she is, the work that she's doing. And for me, it's been very exciting because Molly is a very soft-spoken, understated, amazingly powerful and dynamic woman. And so I think over the course of our discussion, you'll learn more about um, who she is and what she does. And I believe it will really enrich many of you who are listening to see the diversity and creativity of what we can do in our daily lives. So Molly, maybe you can share with me in the audience, why you reached out to me in the first place. Yeah, so I was traveling a lot with like artist residencies, going from location to location. And around the time I just discovered kind of disability studies and activism, um, was identifying as disabled myself. Um, and with that, with my travels, I was always trying to reach out to local disabled activists and leaders, artists, etc., just to really learn from them, hopefully in person. And I believe before I met with you, I had met Alice Wong in San Francisco when I was there for residency and then knew I was coming to D.C. a few um, years later and she um, helped me connect with you. And of course, that was obviously a dream come true and definitely the highlight of my time in D.C. Let's step back a little bit in your life. When did you first acquire your disability? Um, yeah, I was at the age of seven in a car accident, which went, my left hand was nearly amputated. What were you doing at that point uh, with music? Yeah, I was playing violin, like the kind of traditional Suzuki violin track. And then the accident happened. How did the accident impact you and your vision of yourself? Yeah, it obviously impacted a lot. I think in a way, or even when I would look back at photos of pre-accident with my two, you know, so-called normal hands. It was tough when I was a little girl, I think, to think back to a a body or physicality that you'll never kind of have access to again. Um, And I think it made me try to conform to a lot of things that I was never going to conform to, like other instruments, 
when I was younger, I tried to hide it a lot. Like I would wear longer sleeves or not really want to recognize it, which of course now has kind of taken a 180 for me in a, in a good way. How did your family react and friends and family besides your parents? Yeah, it's tough to remember totally. I mean, I think definitely my immediate friends and family tried to be as supportive as possible. Um, it's hard to remember back then in elementary school, I think how other kids react. I mean, I think I most remember the bullying in a way, like some kids would say the girl with the dead arm or something. And I, I think I understand that because it comes from more of an insecurity that the kids recognize it could happen to them as well. Um, but I think that obviously influenced me at the time as well. So you said you were about seven, right? Mm -hmm. And did you see music at that age as your future or were you studying because a lot of us studied various instruments when we were around that age? <laughs> yeah, I think it's definitely the latter option. Or I joke that my mom saw it as a nice like extracurricular on my college resume 20 years down the line. She's always planning out. Now I tell her it kind of backfired because I went actually went into music. So, and I, even today, I think I still question it, try in a kind of healthy way or not try to force that I have to go into music, if that makes sense. So I think on the instruments I picked up, I never felt like I was a prodigy or destined for this life in music. Um, but then, of course, it took more shape once I got into composition. I'd like to really talk a little bit more about this because you're how old now? Uh, 30. <laughs> you're 30. And you have done so many things. Maybe we could just spend a few minutes talking about the trajectory of how you changed from the violin mm -hmm. and talk a little bit about the instruments that you're playing now. Sure. So yes, I was playing violin up until the accident. And then following the accident, I played cello backwards. Um, so I bowed with the left hand with like a splint attached to the bow, which usually cello is played with bowing with the right hand. Um, and then I also picked up trumpet, which is another instrument more adaptable to my hands in a way. But I think with both of those instruments, I was still kind of fighting against like um, their physical expectations of my body in a way, like like I was never really going to be able to perform them as expected. Um, and I think at the time, that's what made me really attracted to composition and that it was all on the computer. I felt like I could let my mind and imagination run free without serious consideration of what my hands could or could not do. And I think for a while I thought like, oh, that's my track kind of, or I'll stick with that. Like I'll write for other performers, not worry about performing with myself, um, not really think about my disability, which of course I think is not truly possible, I think, but that was kind of my answer at the time. Do you remember about how old you were when you started having some of these thoughts? I think around, well, around middle school, I started composing, I think. I mean, I think it was Partly like, you know, me not having to work with my hands as much for it and also just very intuitive as well. Like just my love for composing and that feedback of hearing music you wrote. I'd like to speak for a couple of minutes about your love for composing. <laughs> Where do you think that comes from? How have you learned about composition? Were you studying in middle school about composition or just going off on your own? Just more on my own, like I had a software, um, a notation software, which played back like what you wrote. I forget how I got it. But then I started working in that more and eventually asked my mom for lessons, um, which kind of initially began as music theory lessons and then went into me composing my own works. Um, and I think for me, I always say it's like the hardest and easiest thing I know how to do. Like, I think sometimes it's very challenging or trying to figure out a compositional problem. At other times, it's super easy and fluid. Um, and I feel like I'm kind of addicted to it, even back then. It always feels like a video game to me or something, like you're hearing back what you just wrote and trying to kind of solve the puzzle in a way. Is music something 
Uh, that's a large part of your family. Um, not really, actually. Or I think my mother played a little bit of like guitar, but not seriously. So were you getting your energy inspiration just from within or were you being encouraged at school? How was that happening? I think, yeah, I would say more from within. I was definitely participating in music at school and started especially doing a lot of summer festivals with composition, particularly one in North Carolina called Brevard Music Center, which was really pivotal for me because then I got to hear my works performed, record them. Um, and I studied with more like kind of professional composers there, which helped me kind of see that a life as a composer was semi-possible in a way. Or there were like older composers, you know, have, making a living out of this or having a career. Um, so that was really influential as well. How old were you then? That was about, I think like 15, 16. So do you recognize within yourself that you are pretty atypical? No, I don't. You do so many things uh, naturally that I think for many others are impossible or don't come naturally. And it just seems to be something that flows from within you. What motivates you on a regular basis to keep moving forward in your creativity? Mm -hmm. I'd say, I mean, definitely, I think one, my immediate love for it, I think, or just that I just love you know, making music. Again, sometimes it's challenging or it is a job for me as well. But yeah, it feels just very satisfying for me. I try to do it first thing in the morning. And then I think too, with the more disability aspect, especially more recently, like it's very important for me to try to, um, with my creative work, like resist stigmatization of disability in general or find creative ways to incorporate accessibility, for example, like that definitely really motivates me as well. What barriers have you faced as a disabled musician? And um... When did that start occurring? Um, I'd say, or one early one actually was when I was in undergraduate studies and they wanted to label me as disabled, like like kind of legally for the school and tell all the teachers that. And I'd never had that in my experience so far in public school. Um, and at the time that was pretty traumatizing for me because I think I was very intimidated. I was at this conservatory and I didn't want all the famous composers finding out about me, like just that I'm disabled. Like I felt like I wanted them to know my music first. Although now I'm saying that I don't care at all, but um, at the time it was very traumatizing for me. And I think a kind of a reckoning point that it is a critical part of my identity. Um, and then I'd say more recently, I mean, one in a general standpoint, like advocating for disability musical context. I often feel that disability is kind of one of the least, or disability in music is one of the least developed fields within disability arts wider. Like there's so much activity in visual art and dance. And I think especially with the musical field, you see so much push for diversity in these recent years, but you rarely see disability part of that equation. And then lastly, I would add to just pushing for accessibility in budgets, artistic budgets. I think that comes up a lot for me is an interesting challenge. How would you describe your music? Um, I like to joke good music sometimes. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think no artist likes to label their music. Or, you know, you don't want to be pigeonholed into a specific descriptor. But <laughs> no, and I'm not asking you to do that. But maybe you could explain to us more how you design your music. And, you know, your work, for me, it's it's very creative because it's not just your music. You also bring voices of others from the disability community into the work that you're doing. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the evolution of that. 
Yeah, definitely. So I usually say I'm like, I'm classically trained. So a lot of my music is kind of notated in the Western classical tradition, um, but that has expanded more to, I do a lot of electronics and processing. Um, I sing a lot in my music. And then more recently, it's been more kind of communally engaged in a way, um, specifically with this upcoming album titled Perspective, which features disabled interviewees um, responding to questions like what is access for them, what is care for them and more. Um, and that project really started with a question from you about weakness. What role do you think you've played in helping to break down barriers in the industry itself to recognize that disabled people must be a part of the diversity of the industry? Yeah, I think it's definitely something I'm always working on. I think trying to urge through advocating for accessibility of artistic productions. I hope, if anything, I've made you know, presenters, audiences, so forth, just more cognizant of, one, the creative potential of disability, like including disability aesthetics with artistic productions, again, with accessibility or disability narratives, um, and two, looking at making artistic productions overall more accessible. Like, like I've had a lot of conversations about just stairs into a venue or something, or thinking about where to hold events, how to put them on. What drew you to want to bring the voices of people into your music. Yeah, that was, and that was really prompted by a question from you like a few years ago, because um, I think you asked why I always refer to my left side as weak. And I think we started talking about weakness, I think especially for a panel maybe and asking what that meant to especially people across the range of disabilities. And so then that kind of prompted that question for the project titled Perspective. I think before that, I was always longing to, I felt like a lot of my work centered on disability really focused on my narrative or in collaboration with um, like other disabled artists. And I was longing to more um, holistically represent or highlight voices of the dis disability community, but trying to find a way to do that kind of as ethically and organically as possible. Um, so then I kind of came to the point of I love doing interviews, or I love listening and recording those interviews, taking those voices um, and adding my music underneath. Who are some of the artists that you've learned from? Uh, so many, I think, where to start. Um, I mean, I think going back, initially some pivotal, especially composers for me were like Steve Reich, Phil Plath, a lot of the early minimalist composers. Because um, I think back then I'd only, within classical music, I'd only heard a lot of Western romantic music, like Beethoven, Bach, et cetera. And for me, Steve Reich and Phil Glass represented like a clear departure from that, or it just sounded totally different. And I think that really opened up my mind at the time. Um, and then going forward, I would say artists that I feel like are not easily categorized, like Laurie Anderson, um, Bob Wilson, the director, even Phil Glass as well, that I feel like you can't easily fit into visual art or dance or music performance. I love artists that really blur the lines. Um, which I think really relates to disability aesthetics and accessibility as well. Like I'm always trying to incorporate multi-sensory output in my work. And I love thinking about, you know, just not being easily categorized kind of or doing many different mediums. I don't think you can be easily categorized. <laughs> and um, we'll put up your website so people can go to it. And I think it really will give people a much broader understanding of the depths of who you are. You have had fellowships, scholarships, residencies in many different places, and you've traveled and lived in a number of other countries as a result of that. How did you get on that path? Did you look for opportunities in the beginning? Did others reach out to you to 
encourage you to apply for some of these programs? Yeah, it was definitely a lot of me looking into in a way, or I did my first or one of my first kind of artist residencies in Miami um, the summer between my two grad school years a few years ago. And I think before that, my conception of artist residencies was these colonies in the middle of the woods that don't have Wi-Fi and you're really isolated as an artist. And and that was not my ideal of didn't want to, I really like urban environments or I was like, oh, I don't think I'm super interested in those. But then I did this one in Miami and started looking up more and found that there's so many directories online of artist residencies really worldwide. I always joke that a lifetime is not enough for all of them. There's so many out there. And um, so, yeah, so just started applying to just made a huge calendar of deadlines and applying to everything I could find that I thought I was eligible for. What has been the benefit for you of having all these experiences? Um, definitely. I mean, one person I do love traveling and experiencing new cultures. I think also because it really like puts you out of your comfort zone in a good way. I think it really is very experiential in a way. And then two, definitely like meeting with and learning from artists at these residencies. A lot of them I still collaborate with to this day and having these connections worldwide. Um, it's not like I wanted to do them from a purely career standpoint, but I enjoy that process as well. I always say I feel like residencies are like school, like in that you meet other artists, but without the teachers or something or without the homework and right. the school aspect. <laughs> so give us a little bit more information about what your experiences as a disabled person have been, both in the United States uh, with residencies and outside. Um, which countries have you traveled to or done residencies in? Yeah, I'd say in the U.S., I don't have a ton of like mobility impairment or accessibility needs. So I think, because there's definitely a lot when I think back to that, like just a ton of stairs or something that would not be very accessible to a lot of people. And and then I've done worldwide more in Europe, like Austria, Switzerland, Finland, um, and then China and Singapore, Asia. I think that's it. And more, I think my experience as a disabled person is informed by like when I would try to meet with local disabled people, like artists and activists there, and just discovering the perceptions of disability in that culture. Like in China, I thought it was interesting how when I went to the website for the Federation of Disabled People, I believe it's called, it seemed a very much a medical model or trying to fix disability, get it back to so-called normal. There is one cultural dance group, I forget their name, but it didn't seem like a lot of disability arts happening. Um, as opposed to Singapore, there's a lot of more disability rights and um, there's a huge disability arts festival that happened when I was there. Yeah, so it's very much interesting to kind of learn from those different models. As you said earlier, you have a disability which people can see right away because I don't think you cover your left hand anymore, right? Uh, no, not as much. Only when I'm cold. <laughs> Only when you're cold, like anybody else. And uh, what were people's reactions? And what are people's reactions both here and in other countries? And how do you address that? Yeah, I'm trying to think back. I mean, I do get a lot of comments, actually, that people say I never notice, actually, even if I'm wearing like short sleeves, because then if maybe I start talking about my work and how it's disability informed, um, which I always find an interesting thing, too, because I think sometimes people try to say that, like, to make you feel better, like, oh, I never noticed your disability. And to me, it has no effect. because I'm obviously very out about it and use it in my work a lot. And I'd say internationally. Oh, yeah. Well, I did have one conversation. Actually, I was with an Iranian artist once, too, and he said he didn't think I was disabled. Here's something which is very interesting. I think I brought that up with you once or 
how to address that or because I think I was kind of speechless so I didn't really know what to say um so I, again I find those conversations interesting too because it's just shows different cultural perceptions of disability or what constitutes disability you know and I think like when you explained how you felt when you first acquired the injury people do pay a lot of attention to one's physical presence and I think as you were saying you were bullied in school people reacted to you in a way that was complicated for you as a young child and how to react to that. Do you bring some of those emotions into your work? Yeah, I think I definitely try to, maybe not like necessarily forcing it, but I think especially even with the disability interview project, like bringing that into the music or trying to provide this up close and intimate view of disability that people don't often get around these concepts like assumption or control or care, et cetera. So yeah, again, I try not to like force, I guess I try to, I feel like I number one, try to just create the best work I can create, I think is in that will draw people in if it's interesting, creative work, and then hopefully address some of those stigmas. How many instruments do you play? Um, I, I sing and then I mainly play this boy organ instrument I love because it has chord buttons on the left hand side and a keyboard part on the right hand side feels very natural for me to perform with. And then I'm starting to work more with like music gloves and sensors for my left hand um, to have it make music more natural to its physicality. What types of questions do you get from other artists about your artistry? Um, I'm trying to think more about my process, I would say, especially like with this interview album or what the process was, like if the music came first or the interview editing, et cetera. Um, and then probably more about my instrument as well, like the organ instrument, since it's a little bit odd or something. But... Could you talk a little bit more about the instrument? Mm-hmm. Why you chose it? Yeah, and I'm sorry, I wish I had it with me today. But um, I bought it in undergraduate studies when I was in New York, uh, more because at that time I was taking a lot of lessons with composers like around New York and Brooklyn, et cetera. And I felt like every time I went to their apartments, they would have these odd instruments flying around, like melodicas, play pianos, et cetera. So I always had in my mind, like, oh, I have to get something like that. Or I always joke it was kind of my ticket to Brooklyn or something cute, something weird and out of tune. Um, and so then I, I found it on eBay randomly once because I think I saw it as a virtual instrument option in one of my software. And I bought it, but it was essentially a toy for a while. Like it sat in my dorm room. Occasionally I would play with in a band context, like with other players or for dancers, but I never really thought it's kind of small and limited in range. I thought it was too um, limited to do a significant solo practice on. Um, but I think that really changed once I got to graduate school and I started adding electronics to it and then also realizing with those chord buttons on the left-hand side that it was kind of made for my body in a way or with my left hand. And that just encouraged me more and more to perform with it. Why is it so important for you to infuse activism into your music? And what lessons do you feel that gives your audience? I mean, it's interesting for me because I think now in my practice, like disability is the most important part, definitely, or I'd rather raise disability awareness rather than contemporary classical music awareness or something. Um, And I think a lot of that was encouraged by conversations with you. Like, I think even one of our early conversations, you said, I don't see disability in your bio or something. And that really lit like a light that I should even just start using the term more or being more public about it. And I think I hope from that, again, I can just resist some of the common stigmatization towards it. And just, again, 
hopefully get greater accessibility towards artistic events overall. Because um, it's very, very frustrating the more and more events I see that aren't accessible and thinking about the audiences. Are you finding that there are other disabled people who are musicians who are reaching out to you to get technical guidance? Um, maybe not super technical or I think because my instrument's very unique in a way, but definitely I love conversing with like collegial disabled musicians just about our experiences, I would say, and learning from that. Um, people, especially, you know, musicians from RAMP, the organization. And yeah, so that's been really informative. Why do you think RAMP is an important organization? I think, well, disability in the music world is very like underrepresented, I would say, or underrecognized. And so I think RAMP is so important just to one, like bring more awareness, but also to like opportunities specifically for disabled musicians, um, which I think hasn't been as existent before. Yeah. And for the audience, we'll put information about RAMP, but it's a relatively new group um, that was started by Lachi and Galen Lee for the same reasons that uh, Molly has been discussing the need to bring the voices of disabled people in the field of music together to be able to really advance both accessibility, but also the breadth of the community of disabled people in this field. And I think also to really be encouraging others who might be seven or eight years old as you were and either have a disability or acquire a disability and feel restrained about whether or not they can move forward in the industry. Who are some of the other disabled artists that you are involved with? Um, yeah, I'd say most prominently is the disabled dancer, Jerron Herman. Um, we're fortunate. We've done three or four works together now, and it's very much an ongoing partnership, which I feel very fortunate for. Um, we both have like impaired left side, so it's kind of a shared terrain we explore a lot in our work and with that we involve other disabled artists as well like uh, deaf people for sign language um, we include a lot of audio description um, and, and usually hire consultants for that too for feedback on those facets um, so that's been really exciting now on october 28th your second album was released is that right uh yes <laughs> when did your first album come out um that was june 2020 and what are the differences between the two albums? Yeah, so the first one was very much more of a songwriting album in a way, or involved my voice, um, my organ, electronic processing, lyrics I wrote, um, a lot about acquiring a disability. Um, and then the second one still involves my organ and voice, but really features prominently um, the voices of these disabled interviewees um, responding to like what is access for them, what is care for them. Um, so that's the most prominent oral element. And then it's accompanied by these kind of open caption videos, which feature um, texts of their responses. How are the albums being publicized? Um, they're both on New Amsterdam Records, um, which is a record label I've long admired and feel very fortunate to be involved with. Um, and then with especially the second one, I've been doing a lot of related talks. Um, it might be in an installation in December. Um, it's always kind of an ongoing project with new iterations being created. What do you see in your future? Anything and everything. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I guess one, I am in a PhD program, or as you know, at the University of Virginia. So it's definitely my most immediate future or trying to finish that or learn as much as possible from that. Um, I think my dream would be more of an interdisciplinary like professorship position, teaching music and disability studies. That's kind of a dream as well, but I'm trying to be as open as possible. Um, 
And I think otherwise, just to keep continuing doing what I'm doing. So I love my different outlets of my practice through composition, performance, collaboration, and more. So I've been very happy to meet with you and your boyfriend, Ben, a number of times. (laughs) How long have you two been dating? Uh, A little over one year now. (laughs) Yeah, you're a very lovely couple. (laughs) How does he help you and you him with your work? Well, I think one on a more technical level, or he's an engineer, electrical engineer. So he helps me a lot with technology aspects or thinking through certain programming things. Um, He also helps me to think through um, conceptual ideas, like with the album release or what might be the best kind of plan of action, um, especially because he has that more engineering mind. So he jokes that he's always a problem solver trying to get to the answer where I'm definitely someone that could just talk about it theoretically forever or something without actually, you know, coming to a solution. So I like to ask people to share something with the audience that they don't know about you. Okay. Um, I guess I used to do a lot of horseback riding. I don't know if that's interesting. (laughs) Did you stop? I I took a lesson actually a couple months ago here in Virginia, but um, it's been hard to, it's kind of an expensive habit. Or is it hard to find the time and just not top of mind? But but I used to have a horse name, or I would rent a horse in high school from the summer camp because they would give them away for free during the school year. And my first pony was Chubby. <laughs> so it was a good horse. What do you like about horseback riding? I remember I loved, I didn't like being in the ring as much. I'm more like going on the trails, especially on my own and more endurance riding. And I think I just, I like the whole process of it, like from the grooming to putting the saddle on to getting off and cleaning them after. Um, I think I really like that. Hopefully bond you could form with the horse or having something to take care of. And again, I really like just going on trails as well, just to go, especially farther than you'd probably go on your own. And uh, Pushing the edges. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a good description for you. Yeah. <laughs> you push boundaries. So I'd like to thank you so much, Molly, for sharing time. I really hope that people listen to your music and um, find a real depth in the expression. I think you pull so many things together that can be so important in looking at a new way uh, that music can play a very influential role in our lives. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. We will end this program with some of Molly's music, which will entice you to go out and get the albums. What is weakness for you? Weakness, gosh, that's so loaded. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a word I I think about that much, and I wonder why. is one of those words that I have trouble defining insofar as it is often defined for me and actually most people find weakness is defined for them by somebody outside and that ends up becoming internalized. Some disabled people are weak some of the time but so is everybody else. I can find it hard to admit when I'm, when I'm, when I'm feeling weak. The openness there is also an openness to potential. Now it's time for Ask Judy, a segment where Judy answers questions sent in by listeners. 
That was a lovely way to end the program hearing some of Molly's music. And as Judy said, I hope people go listen to the full album now that it's out called Perspectives. Yes, I think her music really draws you in. It is very different. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for me, when I first started meeting Molly and learning more about her and then listening to her music, it was very special. Yeah. Because it is so very different. And speaking of music, today's Ask Judy question is from Auto underscore types. And he asked, do you have a playlist on Spotify? I think you probably have great taste in music. <laughs> I love music. And I have to say that I feel like I don't listen to enough music because I work too much and I'm listening too much to um, MSNBC and PBS and CNN and I should do less of that and listen more to music. <laughs> I like to keep classical music on in the background, but I also like 70s and 80s, 90s music. I really like to dance to music. I love Yitzhak Perlman. I love jazz. I'm pretty broad in what I do like. Yeah, I like music, which is both calming, relaxing, and allows me to hear the orchestra mm -hmm. and the various instruments. And then I love Broadway music yeah, a lot because it's a combination of beautiful music, great singing, good lyrics, dancing, performing. Country music is not my biggest area <laughs> that I listen to, but I'm open to it and uh, have friends who are really into it. So and I'll just say, Judy really does, I think, just gravitate to music. Like she wants to know what I'm listening to. She wants to know what Kalila, our other uh, employee here is listening to. Like she is open to any type of music all the time, I feel like. Yeah. And one of the exciting things about working with you and Kalila is, you know, you're both younger than I am. And so watching the two of you together <laughs> and listening to the two of you talk about music that you know from right. now, back five, 10 years. And knowing all the lyrics and dancing around to things, I find that very exciting. Um, I try in the little bit of time that I use for enjoyment to listen to new musicians. Definitely. Well, thank you, Otto, for this fun question. I enjoy talking about music. And if you're listening and you have a question for Judy, you can send it to us at media at judithhuman.com, or you can reach out to Judy on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guests or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee. And living isn't easy. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.